0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Kingdom of God, Repentance, and the Role of the Christian."
1: Jeremiah chapter 18, if it is true that you catch the most artillery fire when you're flying over the right places, the enemy really does not want us to look at this passage and consider these truths. I do believe this morning is an incredibly significant time that we'll spend together and part of what we're going to do this morning is after looking at um, some truths Concerning repentance. We're going to spend some time praying. We're going to give an opportunity for all of us souls to join together in corporate prayer, praying on behalf of ourselves, repenting individually, repenting as a church, praying on behalf of the church of Christ globally. And then praying on behalf of our nation. So kind of know that, you know, generally on a Sunday after I finish preaching, I briefly pray and then we're dismissed. After this morning, um, we're going to spend a bit of time praying specifically for those things. So know that that is coming after the service. Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 12. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying... Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay, the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, let me pause there for a moment and just point this out. He is speaking at this point directly to Israel and we must not make the mistake of taking words that God has spoken directly to that nation and apply it to every nation in the world. However, what he is about to do here is speak a general principle and then apply it specifically to Israel. So know that this is happening. There's both the specific promises and warnings to one group of people, but also a general principle that we will see starting in verse seven that applies to all nations. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil. I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Or another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, Speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it's hopeless for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Let's pray. Merciful God, I am begging that you will give great grace. Lord, I am begging that you will do the great miracle of stirring hearts to repentance. I'm begging and asking, oh God, that you'll do it in us. Father, we, we Christians regularly feel, we regularly see this in ourselves, that we'll know what we should do, but our hearts are just not interested, don't want to. And so we delay and we ignore what we know we should do. I'm asking, oh God, this morning that through your word, through the truths that we consider, you will stir us to repentance, to truly humble ourselves before you and bow. So Father, please work Give grace, send your spirit to enable us to worship, O oh God, convict us of our sins, lead us in a in a holistic way to bow ourselves before you and hear our prayers on behalf of others. Please, God, we pray now, shine light on your word, your truths, give us grace so that we will be awakened, awakened to your truths. Any in this room that has never repented for that first full time, to bow the knee to come to you and embrace the Lord Jesus as Savior. Please bring that about in this time, oh God. Please work for the glory of your name, we pray. Help me to be useful in this, O God. And we ask all this through Christ. Amen. The Mayan Empire was once one of the largest empires of the Americas. While some people were still without a written language in the world, the Mayans were making advancements in math, astrology, and building elaborate cities. They were the feared empire of the Americas. Today, when you hear the word Ethiopia, you may think of horrifying images of starving children, pictures of mothers carrying, to our great sadness, skeleton-looking babies, in desperate need of food and medicine. You may know that Ethiopia is now a place riddled with lawlessness, horrific acts of violence and even sexual crimes that turn our stomach. But Ethiopia was once a flourishing kingdom. In fact, was once the largest of the African kingdoms for a season of time. Ethiopia once had riches so vast they were envied throughout the known world. The Mongolian empire was once the mightiest in their region, once conquered and ruled the largest contiguous land empire of history, only to be conquered and ousted themselves after just a few centuries of glory. If we were to begin to list off all of the nations, kingdoms, empires that once flourished in glory but had either slowly crumbled over time or had been toppled in a moment or even to list off forgotten empires, we could be here all day. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. In Acts 17, we're told that the Lord is sovereign over every detail of it. He places kings on thrones And he brings their demise. He appoints boundaries, orchestrates victories and defeats, establishes their history in his plan. There is the day of the kingdom's height and also the day when they may be carried off in chains or with hooks in their noses. The Lord is sovereign over the history of individuals and he is sovereign over the rise, the fall, the riches, the poverty, the life, the death of every king, emperor, president, dictator, despot, sheriff, whatever, as well as the nations that they rule. So why does he work like this? If God is sovereign and he orchestrates the rulers of nations, why does he place Kim Jong-uns on thrones? Why, if God is sovereign, does he ordain, allow, there's a great mystery in all of it, for this history to have been so bloody, so violent, so painful? Well, that's a complex question and it would go into some realms we just absolutely cannot know. At the end of the day, there's one place we have to say with Job, I place my hand over my mouth and I dare not, dare not speak ill of the righteous plan of God. In his infinite wisdom, there are things we will not know, but he does give us some insights. There are some things we are allowed to see about his purposes In the end, the infinite wisdom of God will be shown in how he brought about history, not only to accomplish the end results, that he decreed must happen, but also for the revealing of his truths, the revealing of his glory. In the end, God's might, God's wisdom, God's mercy, God's glory will be displayed most fully through the precise way he has unfolded this history and will continue to do so even using the decisions of his creatures, both good and evil. We are finite grasshoppers. But even we can see some of the glory of God revealed in things like the the rise and fall of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Whom God said, I placed on the throne so that I might crush him before the eyes of the world. And all will know that I am the Lord. God used the wicked man, Alexander the Great to bring judgment on a multitude of nations, including Israel. Throughout the prophets, he referred to various rulers of other nations, sometimes calling them my hammer, my bird from the east. He spoke of King Cyrus specifically centuries before that man was born. All of these wicked rulers acted with wicked motives. They did bad things, but still in the end, accomplished events and results that in the ordained plan of God must happen. The wisdom of God is unlimited. We will never comprehend its depths, never be able to give counsel to God. We are told he brings about the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms. Yet even while that is the case, part of the mystery of it all of God's ordained plan is that while he is sovereign over the rise and the fall, the obedience or wickedness of nations plays a part in their blessing or demise. God, now we say a very general kind of principle here. This isn't prosperity gospel kind of stuff, but the Lord does speak some generality, some principles in scripture. He is pleased to bless nations which submit to his rule and obey his law. Now understand the promises that God made with Israel were unique. So we got to be really careful about this. As we read through the Old Testament and we come, for instance, to the book of Deuteronomy and we see some promises that God would make specifically to Israel, we have to be careful because we cannot take promises that God made to that one nation that he made special covenants with and then apply them across the board as though we can claim those promises for America. Let's be very clear this morning. America is not the nation of Israel. God made special covenants with that nation that he has not made with any other nation. God has never entered into a covenant with our nation so as to make these kinds of promises. We are not the chosen people of God. But the fact still remains That numerous times in the prophets, like Jeremiah 18, where a general principle is spoken, we're told that God has a willingness to bless nations which act uprightly. But he also says that nations, cities, civilizations, kingdoms, and empires which defy him will be laid low. No matter how much glory they once had, they will be laid low. Now, let me spend just a bit of time on that truth. When God made Abraham the promise that he was going to give the people of Israel who were to be born from him the land of promise, the land of the Canaanites, Abraham lived centuries before They ever came into the land. Abraham did not get to see the fulfillment of that promise. He believed it would come in the future. And God told Abraham part of the reason why it was not going to happen yet. Do you remember that amazing verse from the book of Genesis where God says the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete? In other words, the day would come when the Amorite nation would defy God so profoundly that he would bring their demise and he was going to use Israel to do it. But that day was not yet. And so God in mercy gave them time, the gracious gift of time to repent. In fact, God gave them about five centuries to repent. Instead, they went the other direction. In Deuteronomy 10, when God was addressing the people of Israel before they were going to go into the land and drive out the Amorites and six other nations, God told them, leveled with them very clearly and said, I'm not giving you this land because you are righteous. He said, I'm working with you in grace. And I am using you because the nations which are inhabiting this land have defied me to a point that I am bringing judgment against them and I am using you as my agents of this judgment. In Genesis 18, we have the account of the conversation that God had with Abraham and God told Abraham what he was about to do concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God said that the outcry of the city of Sodom had reached his ears in heaven. It's kind of a poetic way of saying that the wickedness that was going on in that particular city, notice it wasn't an entire nation, a city, it was escalating to a point that God would no longer allow them to continue. See, God does not execute the fullness of judgment on this earth. That's what the day of judgment is going to be when all sin is dealt with to the fullness of how it should be dealt. That means that oftentimes in this world, evil men, evil peoples are allowed to continue in their evil for a season, but their day is coming. But there are times... And this is completely up to the free sovereign decision of God. There are times when evil reaches a point that God is no longer willing to let that man, that city, that nation, or that kingdom remain, or at least to remain in glory in order to display his justice from heaven. And in order to give a very precious gift to the earth, and we do need to see that this is a precious gift of restraining evil on earth, God will oftentimes bring judgment and calamity so that people's cities, kingdoms, civilizations who are boasting in their glory are brought low. Consider that truth for a moment, that it is a gift of God that he brings judgment on the earth. Remember Romans 1, some time ago, tells us that it is an act of judgment when God lets, when he lets a wicked people continue in their wickedness. This is, this is astounding. It is an act of judgment when God lets people do what they want and in Romans one, we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteousness of men. And then more is explained. And you come down to verses 24, 26 and 28 of Romans one. And we are told this, that part of God's wrath from heaven is him giving people over and he begins to explain some of what he gives them over to. He says it's an act of judgment when God gives people over to do what they want in the dishonoring of their bodies so that what they want to do is actually something that they should be embarrassed and ashamed about. That when God gives them over to degrading passions and he mentions men lusting after men and women lusting after women and abandoning the natural order that God designed. And then verse 28, when he says he gives them over to a depraved mind to enjoy and want evil, and then he lists a whole host of sins, evils that work to for the corruption of cultures and corruption of the the man. God says that when He lets people do what they want, it is an act of judgment. It is an act of God's grace when He works to restrain evil through many different kinds of ways, both earthly that we can understand and supernatural, like the work of the Spirit to convict. That when God restrains evil, holds them back, maybe something as simple as a serial killer being arrested. God is restraining evil, but when God lets them go, it is an act of judgment. By the way, you're only going to understand that if you understand the reality that the Bible explains that mankind is not good. Mankind is depraved. If you have this idea that we're all just really good people out there, then you'll think if God gives us over to what we want, oh, then we'll build utopia. That's not reality give us over to what we want, you get Minneapolis and Portland. Mankind will not go so far into evil, will not start down the the roller coaster hill, begin to pick up speed and then stop and say, okay, everybody, this is far enough. This This is safe. Mankind doesn't do that. The proponents of the sexual revolution of the 60s could not have imagined a day when the elites of society would try to normalize sex with toddlers. Mankind does not have the ability to start down the roller coaster hill and then put the brakes on and stop and say, okay, we better not go any further. Once we begin down that roller coaster, we just keep going, free falling down the hill of unrestraint. When God lets a people go, they can't help themselves. Chaos will take over because the heart of man is darker and more deceptive than you think it is. In my lifetime, I've never seen a clearer example of this than America's cities burning from rioty. Just consider it for a moment. God did not have to send a hurricane, tsunami, or fire from heaven. We're doing it ourselves. It is God pulling back the hands of restraint. And that's all that he has to do. By the way, it's a sermon for another day on the various earthly means that God uses to restrain evil. And the rule of law is one of the clearest and the strongest. So in light of what we have seen so far, consider with me what happened at Nineveh. Nineveh was a city of great glory, great prominence and great evil. In fact, even outside of what's recorded in scripture through archaeology, we now know quite a bit about the people that once inhabited that city and their notorious cruelty The outcry of their evil became such that God decided to judge them. If God had not stepped in to give the next grace we're going to talk about in sending a prophet to them, Nineveh would have simply continued in their wickedness and God would have judged them and God would have been completely righteous and just and good to do so. But in his grace, in his mercy, God came to the prophet Jonah and sent him to the city of Nineveh. Now you got the whole episode there of Jonah refusing and the episode with the fish, which is not the point of the book of Jonah. It's what's most remembered. The point is the gospel. Jonah arrives at the city of Nineveh and even reluctantly heralds the message that God had told him to preach in a nutshell. It may have been the only thing Jonah said. We don't know. It may be that what's said is the summary, or it may have all have been what he said, but what he declared is in 40 days, your city will be destroyed because you have defied the living Lord God. And then in an even greater act of grace, God stirred and humbled the heart's Of those who were normally stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious and prideful and resisted God. And he opened their hearts to believe the message of his prophet and they repented. Nineveh repented and God averted the judgment that he warned them of. Exactly as Jeremiah 18 lays out in this principle. So what does this mean? It means something that we already know the conclusion of first, that mankind's greatest need, the individual soul's greatest need is to repent. To come bow at the feet and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved so that he does not enter hell eternity. If you are with us this morning and you have never turned to Christ specifically knowing you need to be saved from hell in order to be given eternal life, this is your greatest need. There is nothing that we say that is bigger than that. But this also means it is the greatest needs of the greatest need of nations. The great need of nations is to repent repent. And live under the rule of God. And God calls his people who understand these things to use their lives to influence others around them. To repent and be saved for the good of souls and for the good of the nation. Track it with me, Christian. If a wicked man who is unrestrained is a judgment from God, then what is a Christian? What is a Christian in this world? A Christian is, what did Jesus say that we are? The salt of the earth and the light of the world. In our modern times of grocery stores and absolute insane prosperity that we know in our nation, we have about zero comprehension of the value of salt throughout history. In the days before refrigeration, salt meant the difference between, for some, starvation and health. There are entire civilizations of history that have flourished because of their proximity to salt deposits. Roman soldiers were actually sometimes paid in salt. That's where our expression, not worth your salt, comes from. Salt was an incredibly important resource of the ancient world to keep society from rotting. And Jesus tells his people, This is what we are in the world. The Christian is a gift of God. Unless we lose our saltiness, that's a warning that we are given. We are meant to influence those around us to come and submit to the Lord with us. And as we do this, as we share the message of the gospel, as we live lives of love to try to uh, show the glory of God, we will win souls to Christ, but we will do more than that as well. While there are some who will not turn to Christ and that grieves us, we will be working to influence and listen, that is the great passion. This is what we fast for. This is what we pray for. This is what we work for. This is what we weep for, for souls to be saved. As we are adamant in ministering, there will be some who do not turn to Christ to be saved, but will be influenced to a kind of submission to God, a greater morality. And while that will not save them, and that grieves us still, even unbelievers behaving to some degree in submission to the law of God makes life better for everyone and can avert judgment on the kingdom. The presence of Christians on this earth is a gift of salt. Listen, the period just after the Reformation was one of the most prosperous periods of history. Christians were used of God to influence an entire continent. Increase in medical care, the establishment of hospitals, education, orphanages, fathers were taught to treat their wives and their children with with love and respect. Families flourished. When the family flourishes, society flourishes. Christians have been and are to be a gift. Additionally, Christians are called to pray for the nation in which they live. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 25, it's the last verse of that book, we're told that under King David, there was a time when God brought judgment on the people. There was business they needed to take care of with God and they humbled themselves, offered up worship, repented, and then, and there's, a, there's an emphasis in the text on and then, God was moved by prayer for the land. The disaster that was coming on them, God pulled back because through repentance, humbling themselves, a group of people bowing themselves before the Lord and then praying for the nation, the Lord relented of the disaster. When Judah was about to be conquered, And the time of their opportunity of repentance was over. There was no more averting the disaster that was coming on them. God told the people that they were about to be carried off into a new land. He said, you can't stop this now. But when you come into that new land, pray for the good of that nation. Listen, they were going to be sojourners in a land that was not their homeland, And God said, work for the good and pray for the good of that nation. Christian, this describes you and I. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, sojourners in an earthly nation that is not our ultimate identity and not Our ultimate home, but we are to work for and pray for the good of the nation we inhabit. In 1 Timothy 2 in the New Testament, we're told to pray for our leaders, to pray for their salvation, to pray for peace so that we can live in peace and glorify God. But while we work for and pray for the nation in which we live, there's something else important we need to talk about as well. We do need to talk about where our ultimate identity and our ultimate allegiance lies and how that relates to the earthly nation that we're a part of. We do need to talk about national idolatry. Listen, being patriotic is a good thing. But our patriotism must never become idolatrous. The Christian understands that our patriotism serves a greater purpose, namely bringing blessing to the nation, bringing them to submit to and glorify the God whose kingdom will one day rule every other kingdom. And that is exactly as it should be. Listen, in the book of Daniel, one of the big things that we see happen there Daniel was given a vision of these various kingdoms that were going to rise in history. But there was one kingdom in particular that grew to become a mountain and swallow up every other kingdom on the planet. And that is the kingdom of Christ. And that's as it should be. In Revelation 19, which I believe is referring to the days close to the end, just before the return of Christ... It says that the kings of the earth take their stand against God, assemble their armies to make war against the kingdom of Christ, but he will conquer and every kingdom will come and bow at his feet. Every earthly nation, empire, kingdom is all going to be swallowed up and ruled by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christian. This is our ultimate citizenry. This is our home, not kingdoms of the earth. It is good and right to work for the good of our nation, to defend the nation, to serve in armed forces, to bring righteousness to the earth, etc. But we must not forget where our true home is. I heard recently of a Baptist church, so to pick on ourselves, the Baptist church. There is a way in which Baptists in particular are tempted in this area, maybe more than some other groups. But I heard about a church who. In their foyer before you walked into the main worship room, they put up a life-size cutout of Donald Trump for members to come and take pictures with to make very clear what they're standing for. I hope that as I say that, there's nobody going like, what? What's the big deal? I'm hoping everybody's stomach is turned by that. It may be that that's who you are intending to vote for, but that dude ain't your Messiah The Lord Jesus Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is not empty expressions. Our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of Christ. And while we labor for the good of the nation and can rejoice and be thankful for blessings and gifts that God has given for us to be able to live here as opposed to maybe some other places, this place is not our home Heaven is. We must be careful of this idolatry. We work for the good of the nation and the good of the nation is to bow the knee to Christ. And listen to me very carefully in the end to quote Doug Wilson, it is either Christ or chaos. There is no other philosophy that will lead to a beautiful, thriving civilization. It is Christ or it is chaos in the end. The need of the hour, the desperate need of the hour is for repentance. The desperate desperate need of the hour is not for more politics or better politics. It is the gospel. And listen, I say that kind of stuff, not just trying to get the nod of the head from the Christian. That's not just a slogan. That's not just something that churches say, because what else are we going to do? We're religious and we're supposed to say stuff like that. No, it's true. It's true. It's true. Politics will never create utopia. Only the gospel changes hearts. That is a true statement. Okay, the gospel does. All right, Christian, just think back on your life. Sometimes it's good for us to think back to where we used to be because we can forget. Remember back... Remember back to who you were before you turned to Christ and what you wanted and what you did? Oh, I shudder to think about those kinds of things. But now what is God doing in you now? Transformation is taking place. You want things you didn't want back then. You do things you didn't do back then because the gospel changes desires. The gospel changes hearts. Listen, why do people get abortions? It's not just because it's legal. It needs to be illegal. It is an affront to God. It is flipping off the king of heaven for it to be deemed legal. But the reason why people get abortions is not just that. It is that people want to kill babies. When souls hear the message of Christ, and are awakened. The miracle of the new birth takes place and they are given for the first time new desires and a new heart. They begin to come to a place they no longer want those things. This is what happened in us, Christian. We used to want despicable things and we still wrestle with wanting horrible things, but transformation is happening and we volitionally decide to bow our knees to a new rule It is no longer I live to obey whatever is right in my own eyes, but I live to obey what is right in the eyes of the king. Listen, let me see if I can unpack this just a little bit more of the need for repentance. I'm hoping it is already made clear, but let me further unpack it. America performed. Hear this with grief and sigh with me in groaning performed just under a million abortions last year in 2019. The leading cause of death in this nation in 2019 was the murder of babies. Worldwide in 2019. 42 million. The leading cause of death in the world in 2019, the horrific Ripping apart of living babies in the womb. In the book of Numbers, God explained. He said, "When I form you as a nation and you come into the land, if someone murders another, you are to take the murderer." And God laid out the the rules of justice and how he was to be tried justly and fairly. If he is found guilty, then God said, "You are to put the murderer to death." God demanded. Capital punishment. Listen what God said. He did not merely say that capital punishment was allowable. He said, You are commanded to do it, not just once a decade or whatever. Every intentional murder was to be addressed in this way, justice was to be executed. God said, the voice of their innocent blood cries out to him from the grave. God said, if you do not execute judgment, so as to put the murderer to death, the land will be defiled with blood and it will spit you out. God also said that if you find someone who has been murdered and you are unable to figure out who did it and so cannot execute justice, God actually commanded that they were to offer an offering and their communities closest were to, the leaders were to come and bow their knee before God and ask for his mercy and say, we do not know who did this. Please show grace. But somehow there was to be a um, vindication of the innocent blood that was made And he said, if you do not do this, you will defile the land with blood and I will visit you with judgment. The blood of just one murdered man, Abel, cried out to God from the ground. The outcry from the innocent blood of just one man mattered to God and reached his ears. In 2019, we murdered almost a million. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? We know who is doing it, and it has been deemed lawful. To make the matter even more egregious, tax dollars are supporting the most murderous institution of history. Marches are held to celebrate and applaud those who do. It is blasphemous and high-handed. It is a way of attempting to flip off heaven. The darkness mocks God. Part of my point is, friends, you don't have to be a prophet to see a simple truth. God will not tolerate that forever. We're we're not saying anybody's seen a vision. We're, We're taking the words of visions and prophecies that God has already spoken and given the principles he has already told us that the nation that sheds innocent blood will be, will be destroyed. And then when we add in a host of other sins of a heinous nature, the newest sexual revolution and all of the ways that marches are Hell, I, I get it that you can see something like a march that takes place, celebrating some sin. And, and we could think something like, well, you know, it doesn't matter. They're not, you know, they don't have any power. God's not scared of them. Well, no, God's not scared of them. Of course not. But we do need to understand what is happening. When groups of people gather together corporately to do things, that matters. It matters. When the church gathers corporately, It matters. That you make worship a priority, that we gather together as a church family, and collectively, we bow ourselves before God. we worship. Here we all right now, hearing from God's word, we're receiving His word. and we're saying, "Yes, Lord, your will be done. I worship you. When people gather together corporately and do something, it matters. When there are groups that gather together in order to defy God, understand it matters. No, it's not threatening the kingdom of heaven. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. But what is happening is a group of people gathering together corporately to raise fists to heaven. It's a big deal. It's an affront. It's blasphemy. And so it is also a big deal for groups to gather together corporately and repent. It is also a big deal for people to draw near and to pray. So I said those things to say this. We are desperately in need of repentance. It may not be tomorrow or 100 years from now that God would act. He works on his own timetable. He consults no one. It is his sovereign plan that he unfolds, but he warns nations. Of what happens when he is defied. We cannot think that we are so special that it would never happen here. Repeatedly through the prophets, God addressed Israel, but not only Israel, but surrounding nations. And he said that disasters and plagues, pestilence, droughts, wars, famines, disease, etc., whatever God chose to allow or to send to nations was always meant to be at least a wake up call. Now listen, God can be doing a hundred things with any one event. And we may be able to recognize only two of them, but it is meant to be at least a wake-up call. It might be a wake-up call of light discipline. It might be simply to remind them to humble themselves, or it could be more devastating, full-on judgment. But in all of it, the response that God wants is to repent. If God judges without destroying, then he is giving the grace that he gave the Amorite nation time to repent, time to come and seek his grace. Calamity is meant to humble and bring people to repentance. So let us repent. Christian individually, Christian on behalf of the nation, let us come before the Lord and repent. I want to talk just quickly, lastly here about what repentance is, what it looks like, how we do it and then how we can invite folks into it when jesus taught the parable of the prodigal son he was giving a metaphor of repentance the prodigal son left his father at some point realized his stupidity realized his sin and its ugliness felt ashamed of it but didn't just stop there because that's not enough returned to his father in humility, confessed, I am unworthy to be your son. Let me just be as a hireling before you. But he returned to his father. That's a picture of repentance. When Jesus preached, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. That's repentance. When the Bible gave the covenant of circumcision and then the rest of the Bible tells us to circumcise our hearts, that's preaching repentance. The painful cutting away of the flesh. It is, repentance is not simply to be sorry for our sin. Listen carefully, this is probably the way that repentance is the most misunderstood. Very often it is thought that repentance is just to get really sorry and then ask for forgiveness. Well, that, that is good, but that is not the fullness of what repentance is repentance is to turn away from the sin, to turn away from the rebellion. It is to leave that sin. The Bible talks about uh, ways that we can repent in a holistic kind of way. Like if you are to be saved, you must come to him in repentance and faith. There must be a way that in the whole of your life, You turn away from rebellion and lay it all down, knowing that I'm not going to be able to fix every single detail, but I am deciding to lay down my arms of resistance and I am bowing the knee before God. There is also the repentance of individual sins. So if I'm struggling with anger, I can repent of that one sin. There is the call in a holistic way to come and bow ourselves down, to do every bit of it in between. It is to decide to stop ruling myself, stop doing what is right in my own eyes. It is the decision to come and submit. Zacchaeus was saved at the moment he turned in repentance in the heart before he ever gave one action to what he decided to do. But we also have to understand that for Zacchaeus, when he turned, greed was his chief sin. It was the sin he struggled with the most as a tax collector. When he said to Jesus, half of my possessions I give to the poor and in whatever way I've defrauded someone, I'm gonna make it right and pay back four times. This was him repenting of the great sin that ruled him and bowing himself down. He was saved at the moment he turned and then later, it was his responsibility to follow through. Repentance involves the decision to obey God. This needs to be made very clear. No one has repented who doesn't decide from here on out, I'm going to obey him. It is to turn. And it is possible for a Christian to think that repentance, that's what I was supposed to do back when, that's the message for lost people. And there can be kind of the judgmental sort of thought that as we talk about all these things we've talked about, here's a a danger, Christian. Well, I've never had an abortion or I've never done this or I've never marched in a parade or I've never done, yeah, those people out there need to repent. That is entirely the wrong arrogant perspective. We are to understand what Paul said. I'm the worst sinner that I know. I see my evil and I know that I need to repent. Yes, Others need to as well, but Christian, you and I must know and feel our need to repent and come bow ourselves before the Lord. We are to live repentant lives, regularly coming to God afresh to humble ourselves and repent. So it is a big deal. It is a really big deal for Christians of a nation to grieve over sin, sigh to ourselves and pray on behalf of the people. And let's just be real, if the church doesn't repent, how is the world going to? If the church doesn't humble ourselves, why in the world are unbelievers not following Christ, how in the world are they going to humble themselves before him? We Christians are to lead the way in this, not only that it's significant that we do so before God and pray on their behalf, but then also live a humble and repentant life and regularly be working to try to bring others to come and bow to Christ with us. When we pray for the nation, we do need to pray and ask for grace concerning sins that we have not personally committed would you need to pray for whatever we have, whatever way we've participated in these things, and then ask for God to turn the hearts of the nation. And let's be clear, when we pray for the nation, I do not believe it would be righteous. I think I'm on pretty solid biblical ground here to say, I do not believe it would be righteous to ask God to not deal with the bloodshed of murdered babies. We're not asking him, please just don't do anything about it. That would be unrighteous. But part of what we are praying and asking, turn the hearts of people that they do not want this any longer, that we as a nation are so appalled and outraged that we will work for its end. I know I've used that one specific thing a lot today. It is because I believe it is our greatest evil. I don't know that, but I believe it to be our nation's greatest evil. But we have more. But we have more. So here's what I want to do at this time. I've asked Logan if he would be prepared to come lead us in a prayer of repentance on behalf of the church. And then when he's done, I'm immediately going to come and pray a prayer of repentance on behalf of the nation. So Logan, if you'll come please and pray. I'll let you pray from right there. You lead when he's done, I'll pray, and when I'm finished, that will close our time together. So, Logan, please lead us, sir.
0: Our Father in heaven, we, we come to you, Father. We, uh, we want to know you more. We want to love you more. We want our faith to increase, our zeal to increase, our devotion to increase, and everything that would bring us closer to you. Father, we want that. Father, we want our our actions to line up with our desires. We want want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, we can have presumptuous attitudes, thinking that we can stand before you and be accepted because of some level of religiousness that we have attained to, something that we've done, um, some level of achievement, something that that, that we can say that, that... we're good because of father but we know this is not right we find acceptance in you only on the basis of Christ father we ask that you would draw us to yourself uh, and father this church and uh, other churches lord uh, made up of sinners that have turned from sin to Jesus help us lord to recognize our sin that we, that we would be broken because of our sin, that we would strive for righteousness and holiness in our lives. Father, that we would not just turn from sin in words, but in deeds, that our lives would be marked by fruit of repentance. Yes. We pray for holiness and the proper deeds that accompany it. Yes, Father, forgive us when we fail to love you as we should, when we fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we should when we are not as unified as we ought to be, when we are not as patient as we ought to be, when we are not as forgiving as we ought to be, and when we seek our own good above the good of others. Father, whenever we listen and know of the evils that go on in our communities, in our culture, and yet we do nothing, Father, forgive us. Father, may we put deeds to our words feet to our convictions Father it's not a safe prayer to pray but it's a necessary prayer Father here at True Vine and, and other churches Lord nationally, globally Father search us, try us, show us our offensive ways and lead us to a truer a straighter a holier walk with you Father, I pray that you would break our pride, humble us, use us for your glory. And Father, we do pray that you would keep the wolves and sheep's clothing out of your church. And Father, if there are any here this morning like this, I I pray that you would save them or drive them out from your church. I pray that for True Vine, I pray that for local churches throughout this world, Father, that, that you would drive them out. Uh, Father and if they would remain they would remain only that your name would receive glory more glory somehow Father through it Father I do I do pray uh, that Christ would return soon help us Lord to patiently wait and work while you draw those to yourself that you will redeem. Help us to be useful. Help us to be fruitful. We pray for clean hands and pure hearts. Help us not to be entertained by sinful passions. Or rather, help us to be completely and fully captivated by Christ and for the glory of your name In his name. Amen.
1: Our God of glory, we come to you on behalf of our nation. We see that in general there is a spirit of defiance against you and we are pleading with you that though we deserve wrath, we ask for you to pour out grace from heaven to bring the nation to bow before you in reverent, humble, worship, submission, and obedience. We have many sins which are specific fruits of this defiance. We pray forgive us, O God, Forgive our nation for sexual defiance, not only that there are sexual sins done in secret, but even that there is a growing movement which flaunts and celebrates that which you abhor. Forgive us for lawlessness, for the pride and self-exaltation that not only is practiced but also preached to young ones. Forgive our nation for greed and consumerism, that we spend enough on pets to feed the world's hungry, that self-indulgence is practiced while millions starve or live in destitution. Forgive us for the sinful handling of money, both as individuals in households, but also nationally by governing leaders, acquiring trillions of dollars in debt. And then Lord, there is the blood of millions the blood of millions of murdered babies, actual millions whose blood is crying out to you from the ground for justice. If for only this one crime alone, we deserve judgment. These and hundreds of other acts of defiance make us guilty before you. But beyond these specific ways, there is the general disregard for your law, your rule, and your person. You are worthy of worship and yet receive disregard. You deserve worship and yet you are not. You deserve worship, yet your gifts are worshiped instead of you. We who pray right now ask you to forgive us individually for however we have participated in these things. But we ask your mercy on the nation. What we ask, O oh God, is for you to move the hearts of millions to repent. We pray for light bulbs to come on where souls realize their guilt and come to you in repentance. Please grant this grace to open hearts, to be humbled and to repent. We pray be glorified by mercifully moving people to see your greatness. We do not ask for you to ignore sin because that would be unrighteous. We don't wanna ask you to do unrighteousness. We ask you that you would make souls aware of their sin and its ugliness and to see the provision for the redemption of sin in Christ and to turn to you. God, we pray that you will strengthen the believers in our nation to new heights, of submission, obedience, love, worship, service. We pray that you would bring us to a place that we share the gospel more than we ever have in this nation. We pray for churches to leave distractions and orient themselves around your priorities. We pray that we would leave the smoke and the mirrors and the lights and would come to truly, reverently, fearfully worship you as you deserve. We pray that we will be bolder than we have ever been, more loving than we have ever been, more humble than we have ever been. We pray, O God, that you will make your church holy, that you will deal with us in grace, O God, and through strengthening your church, we pray that it will lead to another awakening. So Lord, we pray, work for your glory. We have done much asking for our good, but Lord, we long that in the end, ultimately, everyone will see that you are glorious. And so we submit to your rule. Lord, we feel we must say, not our will, but your will be done. Whatever it is you choose to do, we will submit to you we will glorify you for your righteousness and the grace you have shown. But we plead, O oh God, have mercy. Any other request we should have offered but could not think of, please deal mercifully, O oh God. And Lord, we ask all of these through the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you all. You are dismissed.
0: Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.